number of weeks ago was I had my daughter, Talia, actually videotape questions that our awakened kids asked about God. And we uh, are actually going to go through them today, 16 of them. And so it's going to be quite the journey uh, as we go through this. So I know that we've got like 40 minutes to tackle 16 questions. And I want to say this too, as I, something I shared last week. I don't think these are questions. What's, what's really remarkable is when you start filtering through a lot of the questions that children tend to ask about God, what we tend to find is they're questions that we might ask as well. And so the cool part is we're thinking through this idea of what it means to, to have questions that kids ask and parents are afraid to answer. What are our motivations uh, during this time is not only to have a series that was built around kids getting answers, but even for us as adults to be able to say, what type of questions do we have on our hearts when we stand before God, right? In our, in our quiet moments and just questions that sometimes we're like, oh, we're not supposed to ask questions like that, or we shouldn't, or whatever the case may be. And we just want to give some freedom to be able to explore them over the course of this series. So how it's going to work out is we're going to show a video of the question that's actually asked by the child asking it, and then we'll take some time to answer them. And so we'll kick off. What would you ask God? If I, if he would play a game with me. Aw, do you know what game you would want him to play with you? Bingo. Bingo? Oh, high five. That's a good game. Lena, for you, we decided to play bingo. So what my daughters are going to do is they're actually going to be handing out bingo cards to all the kids, and their parents are going to have to help out a little bit. And if there's some extra bingo cards, we might give them to adults because there are prizes involved. So uh, every kid, so if you're a kid here in Awaken, make sure you raise your hand, and our daughters get a bingo card out to you. And as they're doing that, I'm going to explain the rules. So parents especially pay attention on how this is going to work. It's going to be a four by four square. So getting bingo is horizontal. Is that right? Nope. Horizontal, vertical, and diagonal. Okay? If you get four in a row, you get bingo. You only get a prize for your first four in a row bingo. Okay? So you're going to keep getting bingo. So the bingo answers... The answers are going to be the questions that we walk through. So each time we address a question and give an answer, you can mark an X on the bingo card for that answer. Now, so that's rule number one. It's only on your first diagonal or four across bingo will you get a prize. Secondly, on top of that, um, when you get a bingo, just have your kids say, bingo, and raise your hand, and one of my daughters will get a prize out to you. It is like a mix of chocolate and gummies, and so if there are dietary issues, I apologize. But the kids will be able to get to choose their prize. And then, but not, but kids, don't keep yelling bingo. Like, if you keep yelling and screaming bingo, we may just kind of have to uh, eat the chocolate or candy ourselves. So, anyway, that's just a warning for you guys. And then finally, the final major bingo, we have a major prize. We had a bonus prize. It's a little book that's got a whole bunch of lifesavers in it. So that is for you parents. It's for if you get the four corners and the center box covered. So eight answers. Does that make sense? On a bingo sheet, there's four by four. If you get the four corners and the center four questions, the first one to do so will get the special award, special prize. If you get that, you just say like super bingo, raise your hand. And then after that, anyone who gets a super bingo will just get a small prize. Is that cool? Does everybody understand the rules? All right, kids, you just kind of nod and say yeah, and then have mom and dad kind of take care of things. 
Is it me or is it really dark? I can't see anyone. Okay. Anyway, so those are the answers. Any questions? All righty then. And then if there are extra bingo cards and you're a parent, an adult, and like, you know, I just really need to play because I need some sugar in my body, then go ahead and ask if the girls have extras, you can grab it. All right. So let's dive in to the first question or the first question post bingo. If you had to ask God one question about how he works, what would you ask him? Um, yeah, it's a tough question. I told you. How can he make clothes? How can he make clothes? Yeah. All right. I really can't see very well out here, so I don't know where the guiles are. I know Serena's not here today because she's sick, and I'm so sorry to hear that you're sick. But I want to say something. First of all, Serena's really smart. That's a fascinating question, right? How did God make clothes? And I know for a lot of us here, our answer to that, if our kids or we had a kid come up to us and ask, well, how does God make clothes? Your answer might have been a lot like my initial answer was going to be, and it's that God doesn't need clothes, right? Why would God need clothes? So he doesn't wear clothes, and he probably wouldn't make clothes. And then I actually started digging into this question. I realized that's not exactly true. I want to read you a passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. I don't know if I put it up there, but it says... Uh, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 14. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many crowns. This is the Messiah and his second coming. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. That's Jesus. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. So, as Serena understood, somehow, creatively, God, his angels, his armies, they do wear clothes. Uh, the finest white linen, which means they like to wear comfortable clothes as well. That is pretty cool. That being said, being God, God doesn't have to make clothes. If you look at the pattern of God in the scriptures, he speaks things and they just happen, right? He speaks things into existence. So I think God would just say, let there be clothes and clothes would show up. So that would be the response. However, that's not the answer on your thing yet. So I'm going to share before I go into that. That's how he dresses the, the people of heaven. So there is an example. There's another one found in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, that I want to take you to. So we were in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Now we're going to go to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis chapter 3, it says, Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who would live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and Eve. So for those of you who have read your Bible stories and you know the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve were made by God. Uh, they were tempted by the serpent to eat of the tree or the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was the one tree, the only tree in all of the garden that God said, do not eat of. But they did. And when they disobeyed God, sin entered into the world and they were forced to have to leave the garden. 
And so I thought it was really fascinating that the first time it talks about the idea of God clothing us was in this passage, and the price was death, right? That animals were killed in order to make clothing. Before this, there had been nothing that had died. But the price of sin, the wages of sin, as the scriptures teach us, is death. And I think for Adam and Eve to understand the cost of their sin, God gave them animal skins to wear. So anyway, the first answer from that dramatic, dark place, where you say the first answer on your bingo card that you can X off is animal skins. Animal skins. All good? Everybody tracking? Awesome. Question number two. Fire it up. Okay, what would you ask God? I would ask him, what did he make when he was a carpenter? Oh, that's a good question. Caitlin Dubay. That is like a very, very cool question. It's a brilliant question. It's one I never actually thought about asking. And so I had to really think about my answer. My first answer to this question of what did Jesus make when he was a carpenter was like uh, wooden stuff. Jesus made toys. Jesus made tools. Jesus made furniture. Jesus made a whole bunch of incredible things. But then I, want, I found this passage in the book of Ephesians, and I want to read that to you. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. So this is just a guess, because I wasn't there with him. But when I think about Jesus being a carpenter, I don't think he ever stopped being a carpenter. Any more than for those of you who are like nurses, you never really stop being a nurse, even if you, after you leave the profession, right? Or engineers, you never stop, or teachers, you never stop being a teacher. There are skill things that you have that you will carry with you for the rest of your life. And so my response is Jesus being the son of a carpenter and learning the carpentry trade was always a carpenter, and he was always thinking about building. And the thing that Jesus was most focused on building was the church, right? And so this is what it talks about here in this passage, is that Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. We are the people of God, the temple of the Lord. And in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus also shares to Peter, right? This is while he was alive. During the course of his ministry, he actually says, now I say to you, you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will what? I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I think if we were to ask Jesus as a carpenter what thing he built that he is most proud of, he would say it is the church. So that is your bingo answer. What did Jesus make when he was a carpenter? Church. All right, next question. Because... I, I would ask God, uh, uh, did, is the Bible really true? Oh. Yeah, that was a deep one. Andrew Roberts actually took this question in week one of our questions kids ask, so I won't really dive in and give you the long, extensive conversation on why we believe the Bible is to be true. But... I would say if I was to give a short answer, if I was to answer a child and answer the question, say, well, why would I want, why would I believe that the Bible is true? 
My response would be that, you know, if you want to trust a book, you have to know the author. Right? This is true with anything, right? If you want to trust a piece of art, you have to know who the author is. And so in this case, that the book, if the author is reliable, is honest, is trustworthy, then I think you can probably trust the book. And in this case, how do we know that the Bible is true? The reason is because we can trust that the author is a good one. He is not only honest, good, and trustworthy, but he is the most honest, good, and trustworthy being in existence. In the book of 2 Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So what this passage of the Bible is saying is that God inspired some of his best followers to write the words you find in the Bible. And this happened with 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years. And you know why God chose to do it this way? The first reason is, well, there's no one person that lived for 1,500 years to write this. So God wanted to tell the story of his work over time. And so he used 40 different authors over this long extended time period to make one cohesive, meaningful word of God, right? That is inerrant. And what that means is it perfectly reflects God's heart and God's nature. In addition to that, one of the things I think is remarkable is God chose 40 different writers with 40 different personalities, 40 different gifts, 40 different uh, perspectives over a period of 1,500 years to write his scriptures. And I think the reason why he did that is so that every one of us could read the Bible and find that the scriptures speak to us. Right? He wrote in poetry. He wrote historically. He had writers write from a bunch of different perspectives in order to have the word of God speak to us right where we are. So is the Bible really true? The bingo answer for you is God's word is always true. God's word is always true. So that's four already. No one's got bingo yet? Ah. All right, next one. Go. Um, I would ask, um, uh, did Adam and Eve have hair and nails? And I would ask, ask, um, like, how, how old, around how old was Adam when he was created by God? Oh, Mia, you snuck a twofer in here, young lady. So two questions. So we'll answer them in order because, you know, if one of you hits... Bingo, we'll go in order. So we'll start with, did Adam and Eve have hair and nails? So the answer to you, Mia, for your question is, Adam and Eve have very nice hair, but they had really dirty nails. So let me kind of explain the answer, right? Why do we say that Adam and Eve had nice hair? Well, it's because they were created perfect. They were created perfectly healthy, uh, with no disease, no illness, no nothing. They were perfectly healthy, so their hair was nice and what do you say about healthy hair? Fluffy, beautiful, like flowy, luscious, luxurious. So that's how their hair flowed. And uh, so their hair was nice, maybe a little bit dirty, but perfect. So they had really, really nice hair. But their, their fingernails were dirty. And the reason why they were dirty is because God created Adam and Eve to work. After God created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden in Genesis 1. And it says, so God created human beings in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. God did not create Adam and Eve simply for fun. God created Adam and Eve for relationship, and he created them for work. And their work made their nails just a little bit dirty and their hair really nice. So the bingo answers, nice hair, dirty nails. Anybody hit yet? Whoa. Let's move on. How old was Adam when he was created by God? This is a great question. I've got a fun verse to kind of uh, go through this. So here's the thing. It's like, well, how old? Because God created Adam when he was an adult, so he wasn't really a baby. So how does this whole thing work? I found this really cool passage in Genesis 5. It says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So God created Adam fully formed. So Adam didn't have a belly button because he didn't need one. Um, And then when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So what this verse says to me, and it will be kind of part of my answer to you, is that it says, after Adam lived 130 years. So that means from the moment God created him, 130 years later, he had a baby boy named Seth. So how old was Adam when he was created by God? Zero. Zero was his age. He was probably the only zero-year-aged adult in all of history. Well, he and Eve, right? So the answer to that is zero. Anybody hit? Sweet! Congratulations! Our first bingo. Good job. All right, next question. Can we fire it up? Luke, what would you ask God? (laughs) Can you make fire? (laughs) You would ask him, can you make fire? Yeah. You're not curious about anything else you want to know about him? No? (laughs) Okay. So, where's Luke Bop, our little pyromaniac? So, all right, Luke Bop. Can God make fire? fire? The answer to this question is obviously going to be yes. As a matter of fact, six times, at least in the Bible, there are examples of where God created fire, right? He created fire, the burning bush, although whether or not that was a real fire can be argued. He used fire to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God used fire to consume 50 soldiers in the days of Elijah. And then, of course, he used fire to consumed the sacrifice when Elijah was making a sacrifice against the priests of Baal. So God can absolutely create fire. And usually when he does so, we're not talking about a bonfire. We're talking about like a serious mega nuclear reaction type fire. So yes, God can create fire. Here's the thing though. God can do more than just create fire. There's a verse in the book of Hebrews I want to read to you. It says, therefore, since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us be filled with gratitude and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Really cool part, Luke, is not only can God create fire anytime he wants to, the scriptures say God is a consuming fire. That is his nature. And when we talk about God being a fire, I'd love to talk more on this, but the quick idea of what this means is that God is holy, and his holiness is such 
that anything that is unholy will simply be burned and destroyed in approaching him. That's the image that the Bible uses when talking about God is a consuming fire. All right, so next one. This is a fun one. Oh, bingo. All right, give it up. Do right there, Danielle, in the back. Awesome. Okay, next question for, is a Clara question, I think. When I can ride on Chase's back from Paw Patrol. Oh. All right. You know, successively, these questions have been getting quite a bit more challenging, not because they're hard to think, but just, when can I ride on Chase's back from Paw Patrol? So that was the question. Claire, if you could ask any question of God, any question at all, any question he'll answer, that's the one you chose to ask. So I'm going to respect it, and I'm going to answer it and say, full disclosure, first of all, I've never watched Paw Patrol. So I had to do some research, and I looked up Paw Patrol online, and I found out that Paw Patrol, or I'm sorry, Chase is actually a German Shepherd police dog, which is really, really cool, and I realized I can totally relate to chase because I like German shepherds. I once wanted to be a police officer and I'm also allergic to cats. So if you can imagine a police dog, German shepherd who's allergic to cats, right. I can totally relate because I'm allergic to cats. And he can what? He can shoot out a net? Okay, I can't relate to that. But that's a really cool ability. Okay, so Clara, here's my answer to your question. But wait, don't jump in. So the answer to my question of when you can ride Chase's back from Paw Patrol is in your dreams. But I say this, meaning you grown-ups, because you're bad and you're thinking I meant something else. So when I say in your dreams, here's what I mean. Clara, do you know what happens in your dreams? You can do anything. When I was uh, a kid, um, one of the things that recurring dreams that I would have is I would dream that I was a superhero. I had all these different manifestations. Spectrum was my favorite because he had the superpower ability of being able to control and manipulate energy, which is a really cool power. So anyway, so it's neat, right? So that was kind of what I dreamed about. And I know, and part of that for me, looking back, was I think there's a part of me that just wanted to always help people and maybe even rescue people. And so that's always been part of my, the way I'm built. And so I don't know if that's just the way I was raised, if that's something that's, that God put in me, or that was something that was created in part because of the dreams I had. But if you talk to my family now, my wife and my kids, they might say, yeah, we think dad's kind of like our hero, and that's really cool. And, and that I do have most of my life is spent trying to help people. So I do think there's power in dreams. So don't stop dreaming. So Claire, if you want to ride Chase's back, then tonight you go home and you dream about riding Chase's back and you do it. And while you're there, maybe you can think of me caught, trapped in your net and uh, maybe hanging out. So in Joel, there's a really cool verse on what God says about the power of being able to dream and have vision. In Joel 2.28 says, then after doing all these things, he's talking about a future time right? A time towards the end of the age. And he says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. So Joel is reciting this passage, reciting, sharing this prophecy to the people of God about something that hasn't happened yet. And even for us has not yet happened. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. So when can I ride Chase's back on Paw Patrol in your dreams? All good? Awesome. Anyone hit bingo? Give it up. Bingo. Raise your hand. Say a little louder. Oh, she already got it? Okay, cool. All right, next one. What would you ask him? 
Barbie, what would you ask God if you had to ask him something? I don't know. You don't know, you just said one. The red wheels. You would ask him why the wheels on your on your little train are red? Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. So Corbin's not here this morning, and neither the Roberts family. And if he was, I would give some really deep theological answer. But because he's not, I'm just going to say it was painted red by some machine. So that's the answer. It's painted red by some machine somewhere. Bingo! Give it up. Bingo. Right there. Oh, give it up. Okay, two prizes. Great job. Keep your hands up, and you will get your bingo. All right, next question. So, what's your question? How did God make all this stuff in the world? All right, did you guys catch Junie's question? So Junie's question is, how did God make all the stuff in the world? That is a really interesting question if you think about it, right? And part of the challenge is it depends somewhat on the type of stuff we're talking about that God makes, right? Because if we're talking about uh, human beings, how does God make people? Well, he made Adam from the dust, Today, in, in Psalm 139, God says that he stitches us together, peace knits us together in our mother's womb, that God puts together, you know, uh, human beings lovingly, uh, specifically, uniquely, and individually in their mama's womb while they're being born, God stitches them together. When it comes to the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the things in the universe, it says in the book of Genesis, God spoke them into being. So God speaks things into being. He crafts them out of dirt. He knits us together in our mother's womb. So God makes all this stuff in the world in really neat and creative ways. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, it says, By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. So that's a cool verse. And what the passage is saying here is that God's invisible power has brought all the things we see into being. So the answer is God is omnipotent. And omnipotent, for those of you kids who don't know what that word means, or adults, means that God is all-powerful. He has limitless power, and so he can create whatever he wants. Awesome. Bingo? Good. All right. Raise your hand. Keep your hand up. This is your first bingo, right? All right. Keep it up. All right. Let's go. Next one. Okay, so that was Briella's, and I think Briella might have misunderstood the question, but I actually think when you ask the question, it's a really, really cool one, right? The idea of I would ask God for a unicorn. First of all, I want to say Briella's not here, and I'm really, really glad, because my wife was like, oh, this is the answer you should tell her, so go ahead and put the next slide. Yeah, that was my wife's answer <laughs> to this question of can I have a unicorn? The answer is yes, you can have a unicorn. All right. I'm nicer than my wife, though, so that's not my answer for her. So my answer for Briella, and again, I'm glad she's not here because Briella would not be amused, I don't think, by that response. So anyway, my answer is the next. It's found in the passage in the book of John, chapter 14. And here's what that passage says. It says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it, and the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask anything 
in my name and I will do it. So can you ask God for a unicorn? Jesus says here, ask me anything in my name and I will do it. So let me explain what this passage means because there's some things that the other Christians or the world is taken to say, well, if that's true, then I'm going to ask for a Ferrari in Jesus' name. Give it to me, Lord, right? That is not what this passage is saying. This passage is not saying that if you attach the words in my name and ask God of something, then he'll automatically give it to you. What Jesus is saying in this passage is really even more amazing than that. What he says is that when you come to God, and if you are in need, or even if there is a want, then I am giving you the authority and power to ask God as if I was asking him. So uh, in my house, if you're in my house, uh, our, our kids are very familiar. So we have a downstairs and an upstairs, and all four kids' bedrooms are upstairs. And sometimes if I want the kids to do something, like come downstairs and wash the dishes and they're hiding in their room, I'm just too lazy to get up off the couch, to go up the stairs and walk over. So here's what I do. This is the nice part about having kids who are teenagers, if you're a parent looking for the hope someday that you might get. So I usually ask one of my kids, Danielle is probably the most common. It's like, Danielle, can you go upstairs and tell Isabel that dad says, come downstairs and wash the dishes? Now, when Danielle does that, what you understand is Danielle is making this request of Isabel in her father's name. Does that make sense? In other words, Isabel can't be like, and they've been trained, they understand, they can't be like, uh, forget you, Danielle, that's not happening. They understand that when Danielle says it, she is saying it with dad's authority and dad's, it's dad's command. Does that make sense? This is according to what dad wants. And so Isabel will get up and she will come downstairs and she will do the dishes. That is what Jesus is saying here, right? That I am giving you my power and my authority to ask as if I was asking. However, that ask always has to mean it's consistent with what Jesus would really command. In other words, if I said that to Danielle, Danielle, go upstairs and tell Isabel to please come down and wash the dishes. She cannot go up there and say, hey, Isabel, dad says you have to give me 100 bucks and do all my chores for the week, starting with the dishes downstairs, right? That would be, Isabel would know that didn't really come from dad, and so I don't have to obey that because that was not something my dad would say. Is that clear? So when Jesus is saying here that anything you ask for in my name, my father will give to you, he's giving you the authority, giving us the authority and power that says, if we are asked something, and, and the way we say it oftentimes as Christians is according to God's will, he will give it to you. In other words, if I'm asking something of God that's consistent with what Jesus would if he was standing right next to me, then God will give it. And I think that is an incredible promise, an incredible hope that we have as believers. So, ask and you shall receive is the answer to that one. All good? Anyone been good? Has anybody got the four corners in the box yet? No? Yes? Seriously? Because we're going to check the answers. All right, go back there. Can you show the prize? It's a storybook, lifesaver book. All right, go, go, go. 
Four corners and the square box. All right, next question, please. Congratulations. Why is the world blue? Why is the world blue? Josie, I love your question. But I think we need to clarify something first. The world is not entirely blue. But I think I get what you're saying. It's made up of all different types of colors. The world is made of a whole bunch of different types of colors. But the sky is mostly blue. And I think the reason why the scientific answer for why the sky is mostly blue is that it's blue light waves deflecting off the atmosphere. So it's like a rainbow of colors, but blue being the lowest wavelength kind of hits the atmosphere, is reflected, and so we tend to see blue. So that's the scientific reason. Here's God's bigger reason. He shares it in Psalm chapter 19 that I want to read to you. It says in Psalm 19, 1 through 4, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. What this passage is saying is crazy cool. It's saying that God has created all things and everything that is created is a reflection of God's beauty and craftsmanship in such a way that they yell and scream, God is alive, God is real, without having to say a single word. So the answer is, the bingo answer to this one is that to reveal God's creativity. That is why the sky is blue, right? To reveal God's creativity. Next question. If you had to ask God one question, what would you ask him? Okay, that was a good one. So the person who asked this question didn't want to be identified, so I want to be careful with my answer so I don't trip up and accidentally say it. So the question is, why did God make the planets if he wasn't going to put people on them? That's actually a really, really cool question. And uh, I love it because... um, It's related to the question that Josie just asked, right, about the sky. And that's why I put these two together. There is something about the way God creates that reveals to those who see, to those who experience how great God is. And so I don't want us to miss that. In Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 to 4, it says, When I look in the night sky... And I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place. What are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? So I'm going to give you the answer, and I'm going to give a bit of an explanation, because sometimes this answer trips up adults as well, right? And the answer to this question of why did God make planets if he wasn't going to put people on them, the the fundamental answer is to glorify himself, to bring glory to himself. Now, From a human perspective, when we say that, we tend to maybe get a bad taste in our mouth. Like, who are we to kind of put the spotlight on ourselves? Isn't that selfish? Isn't that self-serving? And I'm going to say, not exactly. That's not what God is saying when he desires glory for himself, right? 
we all, no matter what we do, the type of work that we do, the type of chores that we do, the things that we do, we want our work to be recognized, right? We don't always want it because we want someone to go over the top and praise. We just want to know that if we're going to put our work and put our hard work into something, that it's going to be recognized by someone. That's in a sense of what it means to be glorified. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and he has crafted the entire universe. Now, I want you to understand something. What it means to be omnipotent and to have all power is meaning there is no limit to your power, strength, and ability. That means for God creating a big, massive, incredible universe with billions of planets uninhabited is no more difficult than creating a small universe with nine planets and one sun. It takes no more effort from God. He is all-powerful. He can do either one, and it's the same for him. So what God has chosen to do is revealing, isn't it? That if God could have just made our little you know, solar system and made that the universe, he could have, but he didn't. Because he wants us to know that he is so much bigger than we can possibly imagine. The final thing I'll say about that answer is we actually don't know for sure that the other planets are uninhabited. The Bible is pretty silent on that issue, so it's quite possible we'll get a visit someday. Anyway, that's just my opinion. All right, next question. Kayla, what's your question? Um, how did God... How did he come back to life? That's a good question. So Sailor's also not here this morning. Their family's on vacation. We're watching their dog. But her question's great, right? It's both simple and kind of unknowable, isn't it? The question is, how did God come back to life after dying on the cross? And the answer, the simple answer to that is going to be resurrection power. That's the bingo answer, resurrection power. Paul talks about resurrection power here in the book of Philippians chapter 3. He says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so one way or another, I will experience, not know, not see, that I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So what Paul is writing here is that the mighty power power of God is the only thing in the entire universe that has the ability to raise the dead. And so Paul is sharing in here, not only do I want to witness that power firsthand, but I want to experience it firsthand in my own life. And so that leads us to this really fascinating and interesting truth that, again, I hate for the adults, we're not going to be able to fully develop, but for you kids, it might be just enough, and maybe the adults too, right? This is an important part of the Christian life and Christian belief. This idea that, this, that not only has Jesus risen from the dead, but that we will as well. As a matter of fact, we already have. For those of us who are Christians, who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we who were once dead have been brought to life through the sacrifice of his son. So we were once dead to sin and now are alive in Christ. 
Okay? So we've already been resurrected, but that's been a spiritual resurrection. And so just so you don't feel cheated out of the full resurrection power experience, God's like, okay, wait, maybe you're not satisfied with being spiritually resurrected. Let me tell you this. Someday, I'm going to resurrect you physically as well. And not only am I going to resurrect your physical body, I'm going to give you a new body, a new body that will never decay. I'm looking forward to that one, right? A new body that will never decay and a new name. That is what the promise is in the book of Revelation. And so the cool part about Selah's question is not only did God's power, resurrection power, bring Jesus from death to life, but God has done the same with us spiritually for those who have believed and put our faith in Christ. And someday when Christ returns, he would do the same for us physically as well. And that's something exciting to look forward to. So resurrection power is the answer. Two more questions, and then we will be wrapping this time up. I appreciate you guys. So uh, hopefully you're still bingoing it. Everyone should have their uh, bingos made now. Can we fire up the next question? All right, Lucas, what question would you ask God? Was Adam a baby or Eve was a baby one day when God created them? Oh, good question. Lucas. That's a great question, buddy. I love you, boy. So I did answer this question earlier, but I'll take a moment to do so again. When God created Adam, God created Adam as a man, not as a boy and not as a baby. So God created Adam as a fully formed man. But when God created Adam fully formed, he was still zero years old. That means you are older than when Adam was when he was first created, even though he was like full size, like eight feet, 10 or something like that, and you're not quite there yet. So that is what it says in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis chapter two, God says, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living person. And then verse 15, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over. In other words, Adam had to be old enough and big enough to be able to do the work that God had set for him. So the bingo answer is God created man fully formed and fully grown, so he was not a baby. And I also personally don't believe Adam ever had a belly button because he didn't need one. So he and Eve are like belly button less. So if you're in heaven someday and we're hanging out in heaven together... That's how you'll recognize him. He's the one with no belly button. So anyway, that is cool. So the final question is from Christopher Hopkins. And da -da 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 -da, please. If you could ask God one question, what would you ask him? Can you make dogs talk? Can you make dogs talk? The answer is yes, but it sounds rough. That was hours of preparation, guys. Yes, but it sounds rough. So yes, God can make dogs talk. Actually, we're probably grateful that he doesn't because dogs get into our very intimate personal spaces sometimes, and we might not want them to talk. Thank you guys for being a part of this service. Thank you, children, for being so well-behaved. You guys have been amazing. And uh, so I want to close this out with a word of prayer. We'll have Larry run through some announcements. And uh, yeah, we're excited to be able to see you guys tomorrow for our Christmas Eve service. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. 
for this time, not only to have our community, but our parents and our kids just all together, being able to celebrate this service, to be able to celebrate you, to be able to tackle questions that have been the forefront of not only the hearts of some of these kids, but even maybe for us grownups as well. We just thank you that you're a God of grace. You're not a God who sighs impatiently when we come before you with questions, but you love us. You take a moment to laugh to gather us up in your arms, and to answer those questions for us, Lord. And I can't wait for the day when we're all in heaven, that for me personally, that I get my million years on your lap and get to ask you all the questions that I want to, to hear you chuckle, ha, 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 Frank, and then answer those questions. That's exciting. And uh, Lord, we just thank you that you're a good God, a gracious God, a patient God, a loving God, and a God who has created all the things in the universe, including us, as a reflection of your glory and beauty and wonder and majesty. And we celebrate, honor, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.